your orders of worship or your Bible and turn to Galatians 4. Um, our pastor, as some of you know, Brian Habig, is on sabbatical for the better part of this summer. He'll be back next month, Lord willing. And um, I want to thank the elders for letting me preach this morning. I'll be preaching July 1st and July 29th, so you can make your vacation plans accordingly. Um, I'll be bookending the month doing a two-part miniseries on our adoption in Christ. So this morning we'll be in Galatians 4, and at the end of the month we'll be in Romans 8. Um, so I definitely want to thank them. As, as usual, I'd like to thank uh, Michael Benthal and friends, uh, the guys who work our audio for helping us listen and being able to hear. And thank you all for coming. Um, we're in Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. That'll be our text this morning. Uh, the summer after my senior year of high school, I worked in a candy store in the middle of Pittsburgh International Airport. Um, and it was a great setup. Uh, it was amazing. Uh, strangely enough, I dropped about 15 pounds that summer, not sure how. But we had the best setup because several of my high school buddies worked in other retail stores and food shops in the airport. So we would swap out food with each other and hang out. It was, it was, it was pretty great. And then the first day I came into work, the manager said, we need you to taste everything in here so you can tell the customers what it tastes like. And I was like, man, this is the gravy train here. I, I think I can handle that job. I, that's part of my skill set. Um, but what, what if... What if when I said the, word can, the words candy store, what, what if the only thing you thought of was Sour Patch Kids? You know, those little gummy, gummy bear-shaped candies that are sour. Um, don't get me wrong. Sour Patch Kids are pretty amazing. But if the only thing you thought of when you heard the term candy store was Sour Patch Kids, you'd be shortchanging the candy store. What about the gummy bears and the licorice and the M&Ms and the rows of jelly bellies and the overpriced chocolates in the glass case by the register? There's much more to a candy store besides Sour Patch Kids. And unfortunately, in the church, I think we've done the same thing with the term adoption. I think for most of us, when we hear the term adoption, the first thing we think of is child placement. Now, don't get me wrong. Child placement is amazing. We love it. Um, a few of our families here at Downtown Press have done it. Some of you are in process. Some of you, it's just on your radar. And we love that. We think it's a great picture. But that's not the only thing about adoption. If the only thing you think of when you hear the word adoption is child placement, you're shortchanging yourself. When Paul uses the word adoption, he uses it five times in the New Testament. And this is the third of the five times, chronologically speaking, where Paul uses it. When Paul uses the term adoption, he refers to God's big story of his redeeming all of creation. It is God's story of cosmic redemption. And so this morning we get to look at how the adoption, how, how the incarnation, that is Jesus Christ coming in human flesh, how the incarnation and the adoption relate together, and how they relate to us. So um, let's read the text together, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get after it. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. This is God's Word. 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that, so that we, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Father, we are tired, so we run to you for rest. We are foolish, so we run to you for wisdom. We are idolaters, so we run to you as the one true satisfaction of our souls. And we ask that you would bless the preaching of your word to our hearts, that we may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Um, A few weeks ago, here in Greenville County, we had primary elections. And um, from what I understand, they were pretty sparsely attended. Um, The June primaries don't get the publicity that November elections get. And there are several reasons for that. Um, You know, Euro Cup 2012 is going on, so so there are three people in Greenville County watching those who aren't going to vote at that time. Um, A lot of folks on vacation. Uh, you know, some, some of you, you, you're in the pool, and once you get in the pool, you're not going to get out to go vote. And, and voting's, voting's pretty easy in Greenville County. All you got to have is a photo ID and a voter registration card. But what, what if you showed up to your polling place, and you had your ID and your registration card, but there was this group hanging out in the front, and they said, okay, you got your voter ID, good, you got your registration card, but you also need something. That, you need to have your hair parted on the left side, and one sideburn on the left has to be lower than the other sideburn on the right. Now, for some of you, that might be a problem because you're going after work, you got 10 minutes to vote, you need to get it done, you don't have time to go get a haircut. Um, for others of you, it just might not be in the budget. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm bald, so that, that haircut is not going to work in the least bit. It's just not going to work. Um, that is an extra addition to the requirements for voting then it's not supposed to be that way. And Paul is addressing a similar situation here to the church in Galatia. Paul had visited Galatia. He had preached the good news of the unmerited, 100-proof gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ. And he had left to go do other work, and he had left a church there of predominantly Gentile Christians. Well, when Paul was gone, these Jewish Christians came in, and they said, oh, you're followers of Jesus Christ. Well, you need to observe these other two Jewish elements of the Old Testament law. You need, you need to observe a couple more things. And Paul makes no bones about his feelings about that. He reserves some of his strongest language in the New Testament for the church at Galatia and says, Who's bewitched you, you foolish Galatians? That's another gospel. If someone comes to you and preaches another gospel, let him be damned. That's what Paul says. And Paul even gets in the face of the Apostle Peter and says, Peter, your actions are supporting this here. You eat and hang around with Gentile Christians, and then when the Jews show up, you hang out with the Jews and don't want to be associated with the, with the Gentiles. That's a problem. And you know what Paul does to address this problem, this matter of acceptance? Because that's what it's all about. It's, it, it's about acceptance. 
on a spiritual and a communal and a social level. Paul says our adoption is the antidote for that. Adoption is the idol-busting remedy for our idol of acceptance. And here we see the relationship between the incarnation and our adoption. And we've got two points this morning because there's two main verbs in the passage. Uh, Verse 4, God sent forth his son for our adoption. And verse 6, God sent the spirit of his son for our union. Uh, First of all, God sends forth his son for our adoption. And, And there's a lot of phrases here that are pretty potent. God sends him in the fullness of time, that, that, that the coming of Jesus marks the filling up of a certain age. And born of woman, born under the law, do you see the historical significance here? And on the surface for some, it, it, it might not seem too profound that, oh, he's born of a woman, really. Isn't that how we all get here? We're all born of a woman. Um, but that is, that is huge. That is monstrous with historical significance. Um, there's, there's another reason why I put the assurance of pardon as Genesis 3.15. Um, do you know the story behind Genesis 3.15? God creates Adam and Eve in perfect fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And he puts them in the garden. And he, and he, command, he enters into covenant with them. And he says, subdue the earth, have dominion over it, be fruitful, multiply. Oh yeah, and don't eat of this tree. Satan comes in Genesis 3 and tricks them And they eat of the fruit, and God comes down and says, What have you done? Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. So God curses Adam and says, The toil, and you will labor, and you will toil now. Work will no longer be fun. It will be frustrating. And he says to Eve, In pain, you will give birth to children. And your desire will be to master your husband. And to the serpent, he says in Genesis 3, The seed of the woman will crush your head and break this curse. And you know, Eve believes him. Eve believes God. You know how we know that? Genesis 4.1, it says, Eve conceived and she bore a son. And your English texts, most of them say, Eve says, I've gotten a man-child from the Lord, or I've gotten a man-child of the Lord. In the original Hebrew text, it it really says, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Eve thought she was giving birth to the child of the promise. But what happens? All her sons grow up and they die. And they commit atrocious things. And so this guy Noah comes along and his parents name him Noah because he's going to give us rest from this curse. But, But Noah's a drunkard and Noah dies. And then this guy Abraham comes along, and he's a pretty big figure. And God says, and you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So this promise now is not just the seed of the woman, but he's going to come from the line of Abraham. But Abraham's a polygamist, and he's a compulsive liar. And he dies. And his son, Isaac, he dies. And Isaac's son, Jacob, he's a liar too. And he is a polygamist, and he dies. And and, And Moses comes along. And he comes to the people of Israel in Egypt, and they're in slavery, and he delivers them out of, out of bondage in Egypt. But it's not Moses. Moses isn't the guy. We're still waiting because Moses says, hey, this, this prophet like me is going to come one day. And it's not Moses' brother Aaron, the priest, because he dies. And we're waiting, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. We're waiting for this son to come. And then comes King David, finally a man of God's own choosing. 
and God promises him an unbroken line, one who will sit on his throne. So we know it's the son of David, but it's not his son Solomon because Solomon has, what, 300 wives and 700 concubines, and he dies. And the kingdom splits, and it gets worse and worse and worse, and all these prophets come. And, and, and they give more specifics, like Isaiah says he's going to be born of a virgin, and Micah says he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but these guys all die, and we're waiting, and we're waiting. And we're waiting. And the last prophet, Malachi, comes. And then 430 years of silence. And we're still waiting. Then one day, a virgin Mary brings forth her firstborn son and lays him in a manger. And here we are. We're not waiting anymore. We have the seed of the woman. The promised seed is here to break the curse and deliver us from the law. Do you see the historical significance of that? That Jesus is born under the same law as Adam and Moses and Abraham and all those guys who couldn't keep it. And he lives and he keeps it. He's the promised one. Do you see the significance there? That the incarnation means that God has sent his son and come through on his promise. That's why it's historically significant. Do you see the purpose of adoption? You see, the purpose of the incarnation is our adoption. You saw that, right? You see, God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. And he sent him forth to redeem us from those who are under the law. Why do we need to be set free? Um, if you've been watching the news lately, you know that in the last couple of weeks... Um, Unfortunately, the Miami Heat won the NBA championship. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a dyed-in-the-wool hater for life of LeBron James. I'm not a LeBron James fan. And, and that, I make no bones about that. I'm not a LeBron James fan. And unfortunately, they won, so that means that the Mayans were right, and 2012 is the last year of human civilization. Um, but uh, one of the blogs I like to visit uh, frequently is Mockingbird blog. And they had, a, uh, they had a post this last week called The Long Arm of LeBron's Law. And just to give you a little background, LeBron is a very polarizing figure in the sports world. So you really either love him or you hate him. And you mostly hate him. And some of that is his own doing. Um, but it's, it's, it's uncanny and it's profound what the writer says here about why we don't like him. That for so long there's this pressure on him to win this championship and he keeps failing and failing and failing. And we like the fact that he keeps failing. The most common talking point of the post-championship coverage is a question. Who will the pressure to win that pressure that was once LeBron's pass to? In other words, who will the sports world now begin to judge for their failure to win a championship? For several years it was Phil Mickelson who couldn't win a major. He consistently fell short until he won. Then it was LeBron until he won And so we ask, who's next? A wittier man than I once said that we are born lawyers. That we have to learn about grace. The urge to judge, the urge to find fault is powerful and seemingly inbred. It is sourced in self-justification. That is the desire to find at least one person who is worse than you. So that if someone's going down, it's them and not you. We find this in elementary playgrounds all the way up to high-powered boardrooms. The urge to transfer the why haven't you won yet pressure to another athlete puts the lie to the claim that LeBron put the pressure on himself. 
the fact that everyone agrees that the pressure must go somewhere proves it exists out of Mickelson or James or not five, not six, not seven. We require someone to put the pressure on because we cannot bear the thought that it might end up on us. This is the most generic of all laws and therefore the most powerful. Even when we reject directives like honor and your father, honor your father and your mother, we find ourselves beholden to the law of be good. But what's good enough? Our number one job as self-interested humans, human beings is self-justification. If we worry about living up to the law of be good, we can at least be better than someone. Do you see the connection here? For the Galatians, they just needed to add a couple things that they could control, that they could manage. And then they could be good. And even this week, even this week as I'm prepping this sermon, you know, I, I lecture on this um, for my job. And most of the time our lectures go anywhere from 60 to 75 to 90 minutes. So obviously I had to pare this sermon down a little bit this week so that we didn't have an emergency meeting with a session afterwards and so that you all didn't storm the stage with torches and pitchforks. Um, but then, I, then, so I said, oh, there's this pressure. I've got to get this thing down to 35 minutes, but there's so much in here. I'm going to have to leave something out. And the sermon's going on the internet and it's going on our blog. And, and what happens if, if, if people don't like it and they don't, they don't share it and they don't retweet it? And you see what's going on there? That, that even in the preparation of this sermon, um, I'm looking to be good, to, to find acceptance in other people's approval of how this sermon comes off. And this hits home for all of us. Maybe we just need our family to look right, right? We need, we need the house, the spouse, the 1.7 kids to fit into Greenville. We need to be networked right. We need our kids to behave right. We need the right education. We need the right money. We've got to have the right relationships, right? Isn't that why we ask people, why aren't you married yet? Why don't you have kids yet? Why don't you have grandkids yet? Right? Isn't that the same reason? We, we like to think highly of ourselves, and we like to think that we can control our being good and that we can find acceptance in something that we can manage. And that's what's so tempting about the law. We think we can get it. We think we can keep it. We think we can control it. And let me say a little bit about the incarnation. We think way too far, way too highly of ourselves and too little of the incarnation. Like for us as American Christians, the incarnation means cookies and pastries and parties and decorations and claymation TV Christmas specials and ugly sweaters and a partridge in a pear tree. That's what it means for us. But you know what the incarnation says about us? The incarnation says that we are so broken and so cursed and so terrible at this law-keeping thing that we need God himself to become human for us. The baby in the manger means we are fundamentally wrecked beyond all our efforts to repair ourselves. But the incarnation also has good news. It also proclaims that there is one natural son of God. There's only one son of God. The rest of us are all adopted into the family. And because of his work, we are brought into the same status and enjoyment as Jesus Christ. The purpose of the incarnation was our adoption. It was our freedom from the law that someone could come and break the curse for us and finally keep this covenant that we could never keep. It's the restoration and reconciliation of the fellowship between God and man. So let me pause and ask, 
What are you trusting in for your acceptance? What are you trying to work at so that you'll be accepted into this circle that you need to be accepted in? What are you trying to add to Jesus? And for some of us in here, especially who have grown up in conservative church circles, the thing we might try to add is Jesus. Instead of Jesus being the controlling factor of our life, the entirety of our life, he's just an add-on. He's something we use to, to help us out to get ahead. You know what that is? That's, that's sending us back into bondage. That's sending us back into bondage. You know, the metaphor in the scriptures is never, you were once orphans and now you're sons. That's never the metaphor. Paul's metaphor is always, you were slaves and now you're sons. That's why the Exodus is so huge. They were slaves, but now they're the freed people of God. People of God. And God says to Pharaoh, let my firstborn son go so that he may worship me. That's what's so huge. That's why this is historically significant, that God sends his son for our adoption. Secondly, God sends his spirit for our union. Um, In about 10 or so days, July 12th, Shakespeare in the Park is doing Henry V. So that's, I don't get paid by them, I'm not on staff with them, but you should go see it, because one of our core values at downtown Perez is loving our downtown, so... You need to go see it. Um, And Henry V is about Henry V, the king. And there's this one scene in Henry V where um, he's coming up on the battle with the French. It's called the Battle of Agincourt. And the night before the battle, he disguises himself and he slips in amongst his men. And uh, courage and morale are low. That would be understating the fact. And the next day, right before battle, we have this this famous pregame speech from Henry V. And, And here it is. It says, This day is called the Feast of Crispin. He that outlives this day and comes safe home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse him at the name of Crispin. He that shall see this day and live to old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispin. Then will he strip his sleeves and show his scars and say, these wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages what feats he did that day. Then shall our names, familiar as household words in his mouth, Harry the King, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups, freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. Get this. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother, be he ne'er so vile. This day shall gentle his condition, and gentlemen in England now abed shall think themselves accursed were they not here. And hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon Christmas Day. Did you catch the significance of that? That these scraggly men who are mere soldiers would be united with their king. That the glory that the king gets, they get. The honor that the king gets, they get. The status that the king gets, they get. Do you see the union there? There is vital union between Henry V and his men. 
and he brings that. That's the point of his speech. We have union because we have the Spirit. Where is that in our text? Look in your text in verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Do you know the only instance in Scripture recorded of a human being taking the phrase Abba, Father, on his lips? There's only one. It's found in Mark 14. His name is Jesus. And Jesus Christ goes into the Garden of Gethsemane. And at the hour where he will be abandoned by all his friends, and at the hour where he will face the full fury of his father's wrath, he cries, with sweat of blood, he cries, Abba, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And whereas the first Adam went into a garden and failed, the second Adam went into a garden and was successful. By the Spirit of Christ being given to us, we have vital union with Jesus Christ so that we get to use the very same words of Jesus. We approach God the Father with the very same level of intimacy and trust and acceptance. That's what we get. It means that we no longer have to look to the law for our acceptance. We don't have to look to anything else for our acceptance. And, and this is huge. This is huge. Because we, and I mean this, we are hell-bent as people on trying to find our acceptance in anything and everything. And we will find the strangest things to do or to hook up with or to be a part of in order to find some level of acceptance. Let me ask you this. Are your idols, the thing in which you're trying to find acceptance, are they going to unite themselves with you? Are they going to accept you? Are they going to give you vital union and life-changing, life-giving identity? Are they? No. The thing about idols, is they're, they're so deceptive. They're so deceptive. They hold out this promise for us. They promise us everything, and they take everything from us. If we trust in our idols, we are cursed. We are cursed. But if we trust in the living God, who has given us his son for our adoption, and has given us the spirit of his son, so we have that same level of intimacy with the Father, we are free we have life. This means we are not slaves, but as the text says in verse 7, we are an heir through God. You know, I, uh, whenever I hear the word heir, I think of the term inheritance. And you know, for an inheritance to be dished out, somebody's got to die. And for us, you know who's died for us? Jesus Christ, the mediator of the covenant. He's died. We get the inheritance. We're heirs. This also reminds me of a direct TV commercial, too. Um, there's, the, there's a commercial where this lawyer's sitting behind this big wooden desk and he's executing the estate. And um, there, there are several parties in the room that are significant there. Uh, there's the, 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 the grumpy widow slash ex-wife. There's the trophy mistress. And there's the schlep of a son. So those three in the room. And, and he says, my houses and my planes and my yacht go to the mistress. And she pretty much just rolls her eyes and like, hmm, meh. And, and, and obviously the ex-wife is not happy about that. 
Um, and then he says, my DirecTV with 600 channels and 6,000 movies, all in HD, go to the sun. And he starts jumping around the room and going crazy. And they all look at him like he's lost his mind. And I think for some of us, we do the same thing. We've ra- we've ha- we'd rather have cheap little trinkets of this world rather than the yacht and the possessions of Jesus Christ. I think that's what most of us, most of us do. And instead of grabbing on to this inheritance that has been, we didn't do a thing for our inheritance. Jesus Christ comes in human flesh and does everything for us. If, if we think we can do anything to give us an ounce of credit, we are far mistaken. Because you know why? The law is heavy. Paul in chapter 3 calls it, we, it makes us a prisoner under sin. Uh, we're slaves under it. We were guardians. Uh, basically, it treated us like a kindergartner. With all due respect to our kindergartners, it treated us like a kindergartner till Jesus came. And just, just take one part of the law, the Eighth Commandment, don't commit adultery. And, you know, I, I think, don't commit adultery. I, I think I can stop myself from sleeping with another man's wife. But when Jesus comes and ramps it up and says, no, th- that, that's not just all the law. The law says if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. Why? Because you've treated her like an object instead of an image bearer and your sister. That, that's a whole different ball game. And, and if we think that any part of our religious disciplines, good as they might be, are going to get us acceptance, we're, we're mistaken. And if we think the Greenville idols of being well-funded, well-educated, well-known, well-thought-of, in shape, are, are going to take us anywhere in the long haul and, and not ultimately destroy us, we're crazy. The incarnation says that God wants us to be adopted. And you, you know what adopt you know why I say adoption is not just child placement? In in our dena- denomination and in our circles, we talk a lot about God being judge because we have we have a lot of courtroom language in the way we discuss um, our standing before God. We'll say that God the Father in Christ has placed all our sins on Jesus and has placed all of his record keeping on us. And that's a good thing. That's huge. We call that justification. But you know, God was something before he was judge. God was something before he was creator. The first thing that God is, is father to the son. And the first thing that the son is, is son to the father. And the father loves the son perfectly. And the son loves the father perfectly. All in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And in this grand demonstration of perfect love, they create mankind in its image. And they say, be a part of our unity of fellowship. Adoption is God bringing us into unity of the fellowship with the Trinity. That's why the Apostle Peter can say, we are partakers of the divine nature. That is mind-blowing that we get to be in unity with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So adoption means Jesus Christ comes in the flesh and he breaks the curse and he gives us a a record that wins us place in unity with the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what adoption is. And the the purpose of the incarnation is our adoption. 
So what's that look like in real life? Um, one of my college buddies, Jamin, wrote this up on his Facebook wall the other day. Uh, Jamin works for a startup named Zarly. And Zarly is an online marketplace, so it's sort of like Craigslist, only more customizable and less creepy. So uh, I think that's a good way to describe it. And one of, oh, by the way, one of its investors is Ashton Kutcher. Yeah, that Ashton Kutcher. So um, here's Jamin's story. On August 3rd, 2012, I'll head to the airport with a ticket to San Francisco. On the surface, it won't be too different. I'm in San Francisco almost twice a month. Over the past 14 months, I've sat on 56 different planes and flown over 63,000 miles as a part of my job for Zarley. But this day will be different. This time, my, wa- my wife Mel and our three children will join me and we'll each have a one-way ticket. We're moving to San Francisco. The life we've known for the past seven years in Greenville will change in every way imaginable. It's the next chapter in a much larger story that God is writing for us. The most recent chapter of that story began in March 2009 when I suddenly lost my job of six years. Six years that I poured my sweat and tears into, gone. With a few short words, all I worked for disappeared and I was left in a dusty desert without a compass. I thought God was using that moment to kick us off the continent and over to China. China, another big bold move and one that Mel and I thought were uniquely prepared for in our experiences, personalities, and dispositions. So we started down that path, planning and aligning our life in a way that would make that happen. But God slammed the door shut to China, and it wasn't opening as far as we could see. Seriously? Really? How many people are clamoring to up and permanently relocate to China? Yeah, you're welcome, God. I needed to pay the bills, so I started helping people manage their business and grew a little business of my own. And it kept growing. I enjoyed my work. Wounds started to heal. Doubts dissipated. Confidence regrew. In March 2011, one of my clients was hired to design an iPhone app for a startup called Zarly. A whirlwind of a month later, we finished the project and I headed off for a much needed vacation. The moment of the phone call will forever be seared into my memory. Standing on the deck of the condo we had rented on Nags Head, Outer Banks in North Carolina. I just talked to the CEO of Zarly, said my good friend, and he wants to hire a whole crew. Silence. This was not the desert. It was the opposite of the desert. God had ripped away a job from me. He had slammed the door to China. My business was doing great, and God was now presenting me with another path. Two exhilarating paths. So we jumped on board. Sure, it's a risk. Startups are volatile. A year later, it's still a risk. I don't know if Zarley will go big or go bust and leave me in the desert again. Here's what grabbed me by the throat. Here's a guy with a wife, three kids, and a mortgage. I just don't care about job security anymore. I'm done believing that myth. The past few years, the past few years have taught me to trust more in God, the maker of my path. They've helped me take risks, incredible risks, like moving my family across the country to an unknown land and still not be afraid. Do not be afraid. But this move is just a chapter in our story. Zarly is not the destination. It's a stop along the journey. Carpe diem in Dei Glorium, or seize the day for the glory of God. That's what it looks like when adoption gets a hold of your heart, and you quit trying to find your acceptance in stuff, and you find it in the one person of Jesus Christ who became flesh for us so that we might be adopted sons of the living God. Amen and amen. Let's pray.
Father, you're kind to us. Far too kind than we deserve. Grace is matchless. We can't even describe it. We can barely get our mind around it. That you would create us in your image and would include us in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's mind-boggling. So, Lord, will you take us, will you help us to see our idols what they, for what they really are? Empty jokes and lies. And will you help us to see Jesus Christ for who he is, the one great lawkeeper, the one great curse breaker, and the second Adam, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Yes, delight our hearts with that, even as we approach the sacrament now. In Jesus' name, amen.